Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. At Dave's Archives, he personally transfers, archives, and preserves classic commercials from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s and shares them with you. Don't forget about his Friday night live stream on, well, guess when? Go to davesarchives.com. By RetroCirc. Take a not-so-silent journey through millennial and Gen X nostalgia with RetroCirc. Look for them on YouTube under RetroCirc, spelt with a Q at the end. RetroCirc, where the Q is not quiet. And by the very generous benefactors who grace us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash telehealthpodcast, including Rhonda Farrell, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Man Mojack, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Rabbites, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Happy New Year to those who are still keen on celebrating the turning of an odometer! Yeah, truth be told, I never really believed in the whole New Year, New You kind of thing. And just think of January 1st and all the other days that follow as just another day, but without postal deliveries. Of course, as this show drops, it's already the end of January, and also, of course, I live in a place where time itself pretty much ceased to mean anything a long time ago. So with that, why would we call this string of subjects the new shows? Simply put, there's always been one very minor, very annoying, very nitpicky aspect about television that always bugged me. That of a constant yet somehow infrequent need for TV shows to let their audience know that what they're watching is new. What do I mean exactly? Well, there's a number of different types of new shows out there. There are those where a major star of a previous TV series gets to star in a second TV show. But to make sure that there's a difference between both shows, aside from obvious things like different actors and locales, they have to wedge in the word new somewhere just to be safe. Like, say for instance, the new Dick Van Dyke show from the 1970s, or the new Andy Griffith show, also from the 70s, or the new Odd Couple from the 1980s, or countless new adventures of Batman, Superman, etc., etc., etc. Sometimes new is included as part of a show's city of origin, like NCIS New Orleans, or CSI New York, or even if it's part of a phrase or an expression, like new day, new girl, new attitude, and so on. But other times still, the word new is thrown in arbitrarily for whatever reason, i.e. the new adventures of old Christine, or even what we covered last year, the new adventures of Beans Baxter. It's that last example that kinda gets under my skin a little. Not because of anything negative per se, but because of the fact that pretty much all first-run TV shows that air for the first time on TV are considered new programming. In that case, calling anything the new whatever is ultimately redundant, and if you ever catch it in a rerun years later, unless you haven't seen it before, it won't be new to you. So with that, we're going to spend the next three episodes discussing three TV shows that took advantage of abusing an adjective. And for our first offering, we present a new show that, no matter how hard you squint at it, 
was anything but. In 1959, the National Broadcasting Company brought together an esteemed group of scientists, writers, comedians, and lawyers to create a TV show so daring, so original, that only now, 25 years later, can it be shown to you, the American public. The new show. And now. Announcing something new. It whitens, it brightens, fights plaque, kills colds on contact. It's new, new, new. It's the new shows. In Telehealth. I've made this point clear a number of times before, but I'll keep making it. No matter how good or bad the show's been during its 49 years and counting, I am more than willing to defend a certain live TV show that airs on the weekends based out of the borough of Manhattan. Yes, I've gone to painstaking lengths discussing my fandom for SNL before. But something about that show's lore and history that goes surprisingly under-discussed are the details of what happened to the show's creator during the five-year hiatus when he stepped away from it. Good evening, I'm Lorne Michaels, and at this point in the show we'd like to pause for a moment to examine a grave national crisis, one which may have far-reaching effects upon the Canadian way of life. For those who don't know, it was in 1980 when creator and executive producer Lorne Michaels stepped down from the show and took a lot of what made the show's first five seasons great along with him. But don't feel bad for the show without him. Yes, it would have some growing pains, but after a couple tweaks here and there, as well as the firepower of one of its rising stars, Live from New York, it's the Eddie Murphy Show! SNL proved that it could survive perfectly fine on its own for those next five years under Dick Ebersol. But what about Lorne? What would he do to fill the time before he inevitably realized that he could never be unfaithful to his one true love? That time frame is probably one of the great known unknowns of show business. I'm not kidding. Looking at whatever research I could get my hands on, Michaels kept a somewhat low profile from 1980 to 1985, which, I'll grant, maybe that was by design because after spending five years spearheading groundbreaking late-night television comedy, perhaps it was wise for him to take it easy a little bit on the Isle of St. Bart's. But aside from finding a way to put SNL reruns into syndication in spite of its 90-minute runtime, lending his name to executive producing a couple of concert events, a movie that few people saw unless you're deep in the world of underground films, a bizarre animated adaptation of an SNL sketch, or even what was essentially a prime time episode of the show starring Steve Martin in 1981, Michaels pretty much stayed off of everybody's radar for those five years in semi-showbiz seclusion. And the reason why I feel it's necessary to bring all of this up is because, with the exception of the following news excerpt from the CBC in 1984, I legitimately have no clue whatsoever as to how or why this next part of the story happened. And I invite those who are listening to alert me if I missed anything, but this is the best I can do on short notice. After a three-year hiatus, Michaels is back, this time producing a new show called The New Show. Now the question is, can Michaels pull off an hour of comedy in prime time? At a press conference to announce the new show, some old faces were seen along with others who were willing to risk a new show at the peak of their careers and for scale. There was still more than a little mystery about what the new show would look like. The actors weren't sure. 
The writers were the obvious choice for an answer. The writers didn't know. Rehearsals were in progress, but how could the show be only two days from air and no one knows what's going on? Lorne talked about what he had in mind. When I designed the show originally, it was all built around my compulsions or things that I was interested in, which was politics and music and comedy of a certain sort and filmmaking uh, in, a, in a certain way and collaboration, which I'm very high on. I could speculate that maybe the network brought him on because they were still having massive problems in prime time during the fall of 1983, problems which we already went to great lengths discussing three previous times, including this one. Manimal. Either that or Lorne simply got bored and he felt the urge to want to get back into a world that he spent the previous five years trying to avoid. We may never know for sure, nor may we know for sure as to why this program was to be called The New Show, which, saying it out loud, sounds like it wanted to be an Abbott and Costello joke waiting to happen. Say, what's the name of that new show on TV? The New Show. Yes, the name of that show. The New Show. The show with a sketch comedy. You mean Saturday Night Live? No, The New Show. Precisely. Oh, so the show's named Precisely. No, it's The New Show. Why I ought to pound you. Yeah, that hurt. So, what exactly would Lorne do to make this new show different from that other show? For starters, by this point in his career, he had enough showbiz clout that he could pretty much bring on whoever he wanted to act in it, but not so much clout that he could only have three main cast members appear in every episode of the show, while the rest of the shows were rounded out by a stable of guest stars who would appear sporadically throughout. Okay, at least that's different enough so that they don't wind up cannibalizing itself by having a different host on every week, like some shows we know. But it's a start. The three main cast members of the show were established stars of the world of comedy, including the late grade Buck Henry. There was only one sketch where I actually had to confront one of the censorship people. Oddly enough, it wasn't the Sodom Chamber of Commerce. We don't have to bend over backwards to advertise. He would be there alongside another comedy mainstay, Dave Thomas. We make the best hamburgers in the business. But my daughter Wendy says, Dad, people are eating more salads today. SCTV, Dave Thomas, not the Wendy's guy. You talking to me? I didn't let Daryl Zanuck talk to me that way. I'm not going to let you talk to me that way. That was you talking to me, wasn't it? That's better. And to round out the principal cast, another Second City veteran who, coincidentally, appeared on the very first episode of SNL as a guest performer back when it was called NBC's Saturday Night in 1975, Valerie Bromfield. He said, when I make it, we'll all go, and we'll do shows together, and it'll be great. And we said, come on, please, give me a break. Sure, sure, Lord. Or as Don Pardo credited her on that first show. And comedian Valerie Bromfield, Andy Kaufman. A friendly reminder that the ampersand is your friend. Anyway, these three mainstays will be joined by some pretty high up there talent, including, but not limited to, Steve Martin, Jeff Goldblum, Catherine O'Hara, John Candy, Carrie Fisher, Kevin Klein, Penny Marshall, Raul Julia, Candace Bergen, Terry Garr, a Quaid brother that's sane, a Quaid brother that's insane, a very young Janice from Friends. Oh. My. God. And perhaps most significantly, Steve Gutenberg. Who makes Steve Gutenberg? 
which I guess means that Lorne Michaels is a member of the Stonecutters, apparently. Even some of Lorne's not-ready-for-prime-time players like Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner, future Senator Al Franken, Tom Davis, and Jim Downey would become prime-time ready to lend a hand to the proceedings. So basically, this new show was pretty much going to be a variation of Lorne's old show slash Dick Ebersol's current show. But in the end, it wouldn't really matter if this new show was anything like the old show. All that mattered was if it was funny or not. And since this is an SNL-related project that I'm taking down, it only makes sense that I don't take this one down alone. So now, making his return to the show is our good friend and co-host of the That Week in SNL podcast, Mr. Andrew Dick. No. Darren Patterson of SNL Nerds? No. Ian Firmiglitch of Ian Talks Comedy? No. Unbelievable. I, I gave all of you substantial cameos in my worst of SNL episode last season, and you're not going to do this? No. no. Oh, come on, guys. Be reasonable. I mean, we're only going to be talking about the new show and... No. no. <sighs> Fine. I'll take down the new show all by myself during this month of quote-unquote new shows, which is going to begin... After the break. Introducing a new soft drink with 10% real juice. New slice. We got the juice and I blast. A burst of taste in every glass. We got the juice, we got the twist. We got the spine and seven out of this. Real juice. We got the juice, we got the splash. Sky, sky, we got the taste that no one has. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Well, hello, Mr. D again. Our subject, value express combos at the Rack's drive-thru. These tasty delights are priced in low, even dollar amounts. So there's no change. That's just grand. Because Mr. Delicious just had some rather delicate surgery. If there's no change, he doesn't have to squirm so much to put it back in his pocket, now does he? He just grabs his combo and drives ever so slowly over the speed bump. Tickety-dee. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast for just a few bucks a month. You can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now, Back to this week's torture. Normally at this time, we tell you the date that the first episode of a given TV show has aired. That is something that we're not going to be able to do this time around, however, because, unfortunately, the first episode of the new show, which, for the record, debuted on January 6, 1984, is not available in full on YouTube or any other torrent site that we know of. But there is a silver lining. The good thing about sketch comedy shows, any sketch comedy shows for that matter, is that pretty much 100% of them are self-contained. 
and very rarely do they have ongoing storylines so that if you miss an episode, you're completely in the weeds by the time you watch it again. So really, there's no key details that we're going to be missing by missing out on the pilot. One of the rare times we're going to be able to do this, by the way. So with that, I'm going to throw a dart at the Wikipedia entry for the new show to randomly pick the episode that I'll be reviewing. So, ready? Aim and... <laughs> oh, right. You can't throw darts at a computer monitor. Should have known that ahead of time. Oh, well. Well, anyway, uh, let's uh, just take a look at this one. February 17th, 1984. Karma Chameleon by Culture Club was at the top of the charts. The Winter Olympics in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, soon to be Bosnia-Herzegovina, was winding down. And at 10 p.m., 9 p.m. Central, and speaking of the Winter Olympics, that's where we begin this episode. With SCTV's Dave Thomas doing his best Jim McKay impression to sum up all that took place within the games. It's an amazing view here from the top of this mountain. Just watch right now. Well, it seems we won't be going to the mountaintop after all. It, what, we just won't. I'm sure there's some context in there somewhere about production difficulties during these particular winter games, but... I wouldn't know for sure, since I was literally 8 months and 27 days away from being born at the time this aired. The actual comedy in this piece comes courtesy of Miss Valerie Bromfield Andy Kaufman, who plays a typical resident of Eastern Europe. How many years have you been in showbiz? <laughs> oh, uh, cinco, uh, f five years perhaps. Uh... <laughs> So that's water under the bridge, I, I imagine. <clears throat> okay, I was joking about Andy Kaufman being Miss Bromfield's last name, but I do like it when weird synergy like that works. Thank you very much. Thomas then wraps up the sketch with the new show's equivalent opening catchphrase to Live from New York! Etc. Etc. This is Jim McKay signing off for ABC's 1984 Winter Olympics. Let's just forget everything, sit back, relax, and enjoy something else on television, the new show. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue like its predecessor now, does it? As we get treated to the show's title sequence and perhaps more of a clue as to why the new show is called that in the first place. It's pretty much sending up vintage advertising cliches of the 1950s and 60s by showcasing a number of common, everyday items and how some of them are new and improved. Which, if you're into kitschy 50s and 60s marketing nostalgia, okay, it's a point in the show's favor for tapping into said nostalgia. And another point in the show's favor for the lineup that we have for this episode. Good evening, and welcome to The New Show. Tonight, starring Valerie Bromfield, Buck Henry, Steve Martin, Catherine O'Hara, and Dave Thomas. With musical guest Cindy Lauper. 
On the surface, I would totally watch a show like this. Steve Martin, Buck Henry, two SCTV veterans, and Cindy Lauper? How can a show like this possibly go wrong? We try to find things out starting in Act 1, when Steve Martin opens with a monologue. Not unlike the dozens of times he did so before on that other sketch comedy show. It should be worth pointing out, however, that the Steve Martin of 1984 is many shades different from the Steve Martin of 1974. Gone are the days of the white suit, the trick arrow through the head, or the notion that he's a wild and crazy guy! This is movie star Steve. Still funny, still has a bit of that wild and crazy residue left over, but noticeably more muted than in his 70s heyday. Thank you. You know, it's exciting for me to be back here doing the new show because, well, when I think of the new show, I think of two things. The first is the cute little production secretary named Cindy, and the second starts with an F. <laughs> I'm talking about, of course, fashion. Because a lot of people come up to me and they say, Steve, hey, what kind of a guy watches the new show? Well, I think he's a fashionable kind of guy. A special guy. A guy a lot like me. He's debonair. He's sophisticated. He knows the difference between suave and salve. And I really have no complaints about that piece. It's Steve Martin being Steve Martin. Nothing really new about that, so let's move on to our next sketch, where the great Buck Henry dresses as a doctor trying to cure the ailments of SCTV's Dave Thomas and Catherine O'Hara. Every night we both go unconscious. And what brings on this unconsciousness? We don't know! We don't know! Easy, honey, easy. <laughs> Usually it happens at night. We'll be sitting there and suddenly we'll start feeling, I don't know, a lack of energy or something. So maybe I'll go lie down on the bed. Next thing I know, I'm unconscious. In other words, their problem is a lack of... Sleep! Well, I'm... Hoping there's more to the premise than that. And how long does this unconsciousness last? Oh, usually about eight hours for me. <laughs> me too, about eight hours. Eight hours of unconsciousness, beginning late at night. What, what could this be? Sleep! Something more basic, please? Well, if this helps, uh, sometimes I can't even make it to lie on the bed with Marsha. Uh, I'll be lying on the couch, wa watching a late night movie, uh, maybe having some milk and cookies, and wham! I go unconscious! Make it stop, doctor! Make it stop! <laughs> Have you considered maybe methamphetamines? Tell me, what snaps you out of this unconsciousness? Well, the, the unconsciousness has gotten to be so recurring that we bought a clock that uh, makes a ringing sound and, well, it revives us. But the worst part is, doctor, sometimes when I slam that stupid bell off, I... I want to go back and be unconscious again. God forgive me. It's okay. And as it turns out, it's more than just falling asleep that's being treated as a disease of the week. But you'll have to excuse me now. I have to go and do something that I hope you'll keep confidential. What? Well, go ahead. Tell us. Well, three times a day, I put stuff into my mouth. 
Yeah. Chop it up with my teeth and let it slide down into my insides. Oh. God help us all. That's not the worst of it. Sometimes, a little while afterwards, I feel like going into this little room I have in my house where I, I sit on this little chair that's made of porcelain. Yeah. Does it have a little chrome handle? Yes. We have one of those. I beg you not to tell anyone about that. <laughs> and just because the new show is only an hour long versus SNL's 90 minutes, the sketch just ends. Granted, a vast majority of regular SNL sketches just end, but at least they try to tack on a punchline. Here, they just stop at people describing symptoms without Dr. Buck Henry prescribing a hilarious cure of some kind. People fall unconscious for eight hours, and they also use a small room with a porcelain seat. What's the cure, Doctor? Caffeine laced with Dolcolax? We don't know, and we're not going to know because we go right into our next sketch, a restaurant in Italy, but not necessarily an Italian restaurant, where Miss O'Hara gives us a clue as to what Moira Rose's fashion sense in the 80s was, while Steve Martin plays someone with dark, non-graying hair for a change and makes a move or two on O'Hara. You are bored, but I will fix that tomorrow. I will meet you, take you around Rome, show you the sights a little bit, take you back to my hotel, we'll have a little dinner, a couple of drinks, I take you up to my room, and I show you what it means to feel like a woman. <laughs> then you give me a grand or two, and uh, I'll eat. be great. <laughs> two very boring minutes later. Enough drinks, huh? Well, skip the drinks. Usually I like to have a drink, but so what? Go to the hotel, I take you up to the room, show you what it's like to be a woman, and you give me a grand look, huh? Two thousand years later. Why don't you go to the town, see the sights, take in the Coliseum, then you go back to your hotel room, have some dinner, have a few drinks, loosen up, have a nap if you need it, then you come back here when you're ready, and I'll make you feel more like a man than you've ever felt before. <laughs> Let me get this straight. You want me to go out, see the sights, Come back to my hotel, have dinner. Go up, have a couple of drinks, loosen up, relax a little bit. Come back here, you make me feel like a man, huh? One debt to society later. Okay. Let me get this straight. Then uh, I would uh, give you the money. Three, three grand. Okay. Hey, Tony. <sighs> and so far, with the exception of Steve's monologue... Nothing that's really making any waves in the pool, so to speak. Which brings us to another part of the new show that's exactly like that other show. Our musical guest. Ladies and gentlemen, Cindy Lauper. Which we will not be listening to because it's relatively popular music and we're still simulcasting on YouTube as a press time. Sorry, Cindy. And normally, if this were SNL, it's after the musical performance where we get to the traditional weekend update halfway point. But remember, this is the new show. They gotta play with our expectations just a little bit. So we instead jump into this next sketch at a bustling newspaper, which, for whatever reason, they decide to call the New York Daily Bugle. Stop the presses, send my wife some flowers, and bring me an Advil. What do you mean you don't work for me? You're hired. Now that you're hired, you're fired. Now that you don't work here, we can be friends. Now that we're friends, how come you never call? Some friend you are. Now that we got that reference out of the way, editor Steve Martin calls the shots. How about you, honey? What's been holding up that White House story? Well, I haven't confirmed it yet, Chief, but I think Reagan may be planning to run for a second term. Hmm. Can you trust the sources on that? I think I can. All right, go with it! One more thing, Chief. During the course of my investigation, I discovered that President Reagan was once a Hollywood actor. 
boy. We're about to get the newspaper equivalent of that doctor's office sketch from earlier, aren't we? Chief, did you see this? Yeah, it's the New York Times. Johnson showed this to me yesterday. What about it? Look at the date, February 17th, 1984. They put that one out today. That's impossible. They can't put out one of these in two days in a row. I mean, are you sure this is exactly the same paper? I'm sure. I checked every page. And if I'm not mistaken, they put out a very completely different issue the day before that, too. Completely different? Come on! What the hell is they to write about every day? A reminder that this sketch had a title card at the beginning that clearly stated the New York Daily Bugle. I need photos! Photos of Spider-Man! Hey, that's enough out of you, yellow Eminem. So, before I push the play button once again, am I to guess that this so-called daily newspaper doesn't actually run daily? Is that the joke? Is it the joke? That's gotta be the joke, right? We've put out five completely different issues of the Daily Bugle. <laughs> I've been proud of every one of those issues, except for the last one, which I admit was a little skimpy. Well, we only had three months to put that one out. Okay then, I'm going to do something that I rarely do and jump to the end credits just to see who's responsible for all the writing here. So let's see, head writer Jim Downey, he's usually solid. Other writers are Valerie Bromfield, Tom Davis, Senator Franken, Tom Gamble and Max Prose, they're good. Jack Handy, love his deep thoughts. Buck Henry's involved too. George Meyer, John Murray, Sarah Paley, Dave Thomas, Alan Swipe Bell, and even Lorne Michaels himself. 90% of this list are people who wrote for SNL in their glory days. You hear that? 90% of this list wrote things that have been permanently enshrined in various comedic halls of fame. And 100% of this list are genuinely funny people, I'm sure. So, why do they suck here? They're great everywhere else they go, but on this show, I feel like I'm watching somebody's table scraps. As we ponder that thought, perhaps there's more to this quote-unquote daily newspaper than meets the eye. Hey, Red, when did you get back from Lebanon? Last week, why? Want those pictures, pictures of the fighting. Well, don't worry. I got them right here. <laughs> but I'm not finished with the roll, so I, I thought it... I still got... I still got about four pictures left. I figure I'll have it used up by the weekend. Listen, the weekend's not good enough. I want you to get those pictures to the drugstore, take four more of them if you have to, and get them to me by Thursday. Hey, bug off, man. What am I supposed to do? Take pictures that aren't even going to end up in the paper? Come on. So, any other jokes aside from the fact that this is clearly a lazy newspaper? Any other jokes at all? What if we did come out every day? What if I would have to make deadlines for ourselves? Maybe buy ourselves another typewriter. You know what else? We should get a coffee machine. That way, if we wanted a cup of coffee, we would have it right here instead of going all the way downtown. Yeah, but <laughs> how do we fill a whole newspaper every day? Where's the news? Oh, I know what. On my way over here, I saw a huge fire raging in a building down the street. Yeah, so what? Well, <laughs> we could write about that. Yeah, I can see the headline now. A big fire. Yeah, I have brain damage. That's gotta be the only reasonable explanation why I'm not finding any of this funny. 
I've either had to have inhaled asbestos, watched nuclear tests at point-blank range, or eaten several dozen pencils at one point in my life. It has to explain why a group of talented individuals on camera and off are squandering that talent. It just has to. It should also explain why we don't get a weekend update on the news show, though they probably could have since SNL's fake newscasts of 1984 were on the air under the title Saturday Night News. But instead, we get something called Weekend Tonight. Once again, it's Weekend Tonight with those two celebrated world travelers who go everywhere and know everyone and never let a weekend go to waste. Buck Henry and Dave Thomas. Which I guess is supposed to be a send-up of the then-primitive Entertainment Tonight program and various other news magazines, instead of simply setting up a joke towards an obvious punchline. At this point, I'll take any variation to just about anything. As long as it's funny. You know, like a comedy show is supposed to be. Anyway, Buck Henry and SCTV's Dave Thomas are the segment's main anchors. How do they fare? You know, a visit to the famed Russian Tea Room is a must for New York tourists, but it's small change compared to the kind of spectacular two-day bash surrounding a major Russian funeral. (laughs) Dave and I were lucky enough to be included on the exclusive list of VIPs invited to the reception in Red Square in honor of the late Yuri Andropov, or Andy, as he is known to Dave and me. Yes, and after viewing the body in the traditional open casket, British Prime Minister Margaret Maggie Thatcher broke both of us up with her witty observation, to my mind, two things should always be kept closed, toothpaste tubes and Russian coffins. (laughs) References that I'm sure meant something way back when, but would be completely lost on those who don't use Wikipedia on a regular basis. As we move on to Dave and Buck harassing the shit out of Catherine O'Hara's version of Julie Andrews. Oh, hello. Buck Henry. And Dave Thomas. For Weekend Tonight. A couple of questions, please. I'm sorry, Entertainment Tonight. Weekend, no, weekend tonight. tonight. I just want to talk to you for just a, a few minutes. Just a couple of minutes, questions, please. please. Oh, you don't mind waiting here. I'm, I'm on a long distance call. Well, well no we'll wait. Problem. Could you turn that spotlight on? No problem. We'll just wait in here with you. <laughs> hello, love. It's two gentlemen. They've come here for an interview. I don't know where they're from. They're from... Is it Weekend Tonight? Yes. Yes, Weekend Tonight. Well, I don't know. Yes. Well, we've had people like this before, haven't we? Well, we could talk. Well, this goes on for 12 more minutes. Do your boobs hang low? Oh, oh, hang on, hang on. I think uh, we're in trouble with that word. word. Yeah. Don't sense. you think? Yes. Do your hooters hang low? Do they wobble to and fro? Can you tie them in a knot? Can you tie them in a bow? Can you throw them over your shoulder like a continental soldier? Well, credit to O'Hara for making the most of an awkward situation and a reasonably good impression. Though, if that were the real Julie Andrews, I'm pretty sure she would have done this. When you quite finished! And then slammed the door on them in six seconds. Thank you. Not unlike Weekend Update's never-ending runtime these days, Weekend Tonight plows forward. This coming Monday is President's Day, and millions of Americans will be taking advantage of the three-day weekend to visit their favorite presidential libraries and museums. The figures are in from last weekend, and here are the nation's top-grossing presidential museums. Which we will not be showing due to rampant use of a Chuck Mangione song. But suffice to say, they treat a listing of presidential libraries as hits on the Billboard chart. 
complete with number of weeks on the chart and everything. Hilarity ensues, and lather, rinse, repeat. But Dave, while those of a more intellectual bent are enjoying America's presidential archives, our nation's morons and lowlifes will be throwing away their money at innumerable tawdry and depressing night spots. The results are in, and here are last week's top-grossing dives and hellholes. Well, it took nearly 30 minutes to do, but... That was probably the second funny thing I actually laughed at in this show, aside from Steve Martin's monologue. Though, on behalf of all of us in the underworld, I'm kind of astonished that hell itself is not listed among a list of top-grossing hell holes. Some place called the Coach and Pole Lounge in Troy, New York is sitting pretty at number one. Maybe if we plugged our Patreon at patreon.com slash telehellpodcast more than twice per episode, we might wind up on that list someday. As the ongoing numb slog continues with... Well, frivolity, levity, and hilarity. That can only mean one thing. The shuttle. You're right, Dave. You know, there was a regular laugh riot last week when the crew of the space shuttle Challenger played the first practical joke in outer space. Okay, freeze! As we pointed out, this was 1984, two years before the Space Shuttle Challenger itself would become the victim of the ultimate practical joke against humanity. Whatever it is that they're about to set up here, please take with as small a grain of salt as possible. Proceed. The whole thing started when Bruce McCandless completed his spacewalk and everyone else decided to have a little fun at his expense. <laughs> McCandless uh, requesting disengage airlock to reboard Challenger. McCandless out. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't quite catch that name. Ah, <laughs> uh, come on, guys. That's not funny. Uh, What's the password? Uh, requesting disengage airlock. You're a bad astronaut. Bad. Don't ever do that to me again. Bad, bad astronaut. Keep away from my umbilical cord. And now I'm starting to realize why the podcasters I reached out to earlier decided to pass on reviewing this. Well played, gentlemen. Well played. Oh, and good news! Weekend Tonight is still going. That's right. It's that phenomenon of the English pop scene Boy George who stays in shape by boxing, like so many other singers have. Elvis Presley, Perry Como, Peter Paul and Mary. Boy, how long have you been fighting? As long as I've been wearing these clothes. Boy George, what is it you like most about boxing? Oh, I just get to go in there and beep, 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 beep. You throw a lot of punches, but you rarely take a punch. Why is that? Gotta protect the porcelain. And! And! Boy, George, by a knockout, a great singer, a great boxer, a great karma chameleon. This is Buck Henry for Weekend Tonight. Oh, thank the Dark Lord, that's over. And... Lo and behold, that actually took 12 minutes of TV airtime. This goes on for 12 more minutes. Just think, if they cut that segment in half and donate the extra time to the first three sketches, then maybe they might have wound up a little more solid, as we hope for in our next sketch. We open on Buck Henry in a wig on loan from the Jerry Springer collection as he's catching up with Valerie Bromfield as his ex-wife in the same Italian restaurant backdrop from earlier in the show. All the while, Steve and Catherine are casually observing. Jennifer drew this picture in her class. She wanted me to give it to you. Cut! Bobby, what are you yelling cut for? I'm the director here. Those two ashes, they keep staring in the lens. What? <laughs> what are the names? Those two, what are the names? Oh, it's one of those sketches. 
you know, the kind where a person is given a simple task to do, but spends the entirety of the sketch not doing it correctly. Seriously, that trope is probably as old as sketch comedy itself, and it can work properly, but it's never once worked 100% perfectly. In this case, Steve and Catherine are extras in a movie, and they keep staring into the barrel of the camera when they should be interacting with the rest of the scene. A sketch trope that I swear I've seen on SNL several dozen times since this aired. But I digress. Since this is a sketch that relies heavily on visual humor, I'll spare you the details. Steve and Catherine continuously ruin the scene by making out with each other, by doing that arm-twisty thing where they share each other's drinks, where they feed lines to the performers directly on camera, and requesting more ice be in their iced tea. Which, I'll concede, is actually a lot funnier than I'm describing it. In fact, this may actually be genuinely the best sketch of the episode. Hell, it even has a reasonable punchline. What do you think extras are? Just pieces of furniture? Maybe you think we're decorations hanging on the wall? Well, we're not. We're living, breathing, extremely talented actors who are creating life in this scene. And if you don't understand that we're just trying to make this the best production possible, then we're walking. Fine. So I would be like a bachelor who came in alone. <laughs> But the ratio between good sketches and bad is still pretty wide, as we now recycle Buck Henry's doctor's office from earlier in the show and turn it into a place where a job interview is being held. There's just one more thing. Yes. Uh, we have to ask everyone this stuff. It's just a formality. Hope you don't mind. No, no. Go right ahead. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Why, yes. Yes, I have. But you're not active anymore, right? Oh yes, very active. Uh, in fact, I'm head of the local cell. A reminder that this was 1984. The Cold War was not only still taking place, but it was just about ready to wind down. Well, that's about it. Like I said, just a formality. So I'll see you at your desk on Monday. Uh, no, actually, I'd like to take the first month off with pay if I could. Well, don't think about it too long, because there are a lot of people who would love this job. Oh, yeah? Well, uh, why don't you go find some of those people? Because I wouldn't work for you for all the money in the world or to save my life. You're much too pushy. And that right there would have been a great place to end the sketch. But, of course, they always need to overdo it by just a couple seconds. Barbara, would you come in here, please? Yes, Mr. Reynolds? What did you think? I liked him. Me too. I sure hope he comes back. Yeah. Okay, to be fair, that sketch didn't suck either. As we now fast forward past Cindy Lauper's second song of the evening and zero in on our final sketch of the night. The two major events of this week were, of course, the change in the Soviet hierarchy and the dramatic events in outer space. Academy Award winning Polish director... Zbigniew Rybczynski has neatly tied these two themes together in his latest experiment in video, which he calls The Day Before. Not to be confused with the 1983 TV movie The Day After, though considering the hour that we've been sitting through, footage of nuclear annihilation and deformity would be a welcome step up. Since this one relies a little bit more on visual humor than that extra sketch, I'll do you the favor of making this sketch a part of our YouTube trailer this week but I'll attempt to do a play-by-play -play right now. Raz, two, three, огонь. 
Simply put, a cosmonaut who bears a striking resemblance to Mr. Noodle from the Elmo's World sketches on Sesame Street is blasted into orbit. As he's orbiting, he does what I assume Russians do best on the job and drinks the day away. All the while, he's seen grappling with that old outer-worldly nemesis, Zero Gravity. All the while, some kind of Eastern European folk song that I swear I've heard in Looney Tunes cartoons is playing in the background. Hilarity continues to ensue until, ultimately, his ship malfunctions, the spinning stops, and he's able to enjoy his drink. Cut, print, fade out, the end. Which is also how this new show grinds to a stop. Well, I want to thank everyone that was on the new show with me. However, I'm too much of an egomaniac to learn anyone's name. <laughs> so I'd like to thank these people, these guys, that have helped the show. Cindy Lauper, Dave Thomas, and his lovely wife, Pam, who did have, have a few. <laughs> Later on the Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, Johnny welcomes Battle and Con. Then Rock with Cool of the Gang's sensational world premiere video. The Stones, She Was Hot, and more on Friday Night Videos. Tomorrow night, join Jamie Lee Curtis, Eddie Murphy and company for an all-new Saturday Night Live. Be there. All of those shows sounding even infinitesimally more entertaining than what we just sat through. The new show only lasted nine episodes, with a tenth best-of show closing out the run in March of 1984. Of the 94 TV programs that occupied the 1983-84 TV season, this one finished... Dead. Last. In the show's defense, however, and one of a number of defenses I'm actually going to be making for this, the show never really stood a chance, because, not unlike Jennifer Slept Here in Manimal, this too had the misfortune of being programmed on a Friday night against dominant figures in prime time. Detective series Matt Houston on ABC, and long-running primetime soap Falcon Crest on CBS. That being said, I really don't want to discount this show entirely because there are a fair share of good sketches, and not-so-good ones, all of which are buoyed by the star power of rotating guests, which, more or less, is pretty much what every episode of SNL has been since 1975. Not everything is going to be 100%, and thanks to the law of averages, very rarely is an episode of SNL considered perfect. And again, I see this as a life-and-death-long fan of the show. Now, I certainly wouldn't go out of my way to call the new show a guilty pleasure by any means, partly because it would violate our rules, but there are some good moments to be seen elsewhere. Probably the best-known sketch the series ever had came from its first episode, where they did a parody of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean with Steve Martin as Jacko. Don't read too much into that. Might I also recommend John Candy in a sketch called Roy's Food Repair, a parody of George Orwell's 1984 with Jeff Goldblum, a moment where Penny Marshall learns how to breakdance, and hell, even some of the musical acts who appeared on this show was worth watching. Not just Cindy Lauper, but also Buster Poindexter, aka David Johansson, Randy Newman, John Mellencamp, Rick James, The Pretenders, Laurie Anderson, and even longtime Lorne BFF, Paul Simon. So now, we gotta ask ourselves, what the here are we doing looking at a show that clearly had a lot going for itself, but otherwise fell short of expectations? Why would NBC re-up with somebody who was instrumental in creating one of the network's few successes during their darkest years, only for the complete opposite to wind up happening? 
it's time for the new show to meet up with an old flame. Or possibly nine of them. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Simply put, the new show has a lot of gall and a lot of balls trying to call itself new when we know damn well that a perfectly good old show was still on the air and still running circles around everybody. The notion of having two very similar sketch comedy shows on the same network at the same time is a pretty gluttonous demand for fans of sketch comedy. NBC already had a Saturday Night Live. It didn't need a duplicate, and it didn't need to be on in primetime, and it certainly didn't need to be Friday Night Taped. Or as fellow new show guest star Kevin Klein might put it, Stupid jerk, I mean, what the fuck are you doing robbing your own house, you asshole? In short, Lorne wound up cannibalizing his best work, and not only committed unintentional fraud against SNL because of it, but also tarnished some of SNL's early years with heresy on account of the fact that the show was largely unnecessary to begin with. Also, to recap, we really do not know the how and the why of NBC and Lawrence reunification and ultimately how this project came to be. But considering the network was still looking for anything to put on its schedule by the winter of 1984, and Lawrence simply looking for something to do with his spare time, we can only speculate that a high price tag might have been involved to lure him. In fact, according to Tom Shales and James Andrew Miller's classic Live from New York book, Lorne himself was quoted to say that each episode of the new show cost $1 million out of his own pocket via his Broadway video production company. Then again, he was already making millions thanks to syndicating the early years of SNL, so it wasn't exactly like he was hard up for money or anything. But considering NBC's desperation to patch up their Friday nights, it wouldn't surprise me if they threw a lot of money Lorne's way anyway. So, we will mark this for greed, but only on a speculatory standpoint. For all we know, it could have been done for a pittance, or it could have been done as a favor for both sides. But better safe than sorry. The new show earns four out of nine circles of telehell. Lorne Michaels has been quoted from time to time to say, quote, We don't go on because it's ready. We go on because it's 11.30, end quote. A reference to the breakneck speed of putting together a live TV show from scratch every week. Unlike SNL, the new show does not have the obstacle of it being live. It has time to prepare itself. It has time to flesh things out, and it has time to figure out what works and what doesn't. Time which should have been on its side, yet that luxury seemed to have been in short supply. For sketch comedy fans, this is probably one of the bigger anomalies to happen in the genre, especially with so much talent in front of and behind the camera going to waste. But, like many in the genre, the best thing I can say about the show is that it didn't really cause any detrimental harm to anybody involved. Practically every cast member and writer continued with their careers, NBC would eventually put on better shows to propel them to first place, and Lorne Michaels would soon realize that some habits are too hard to break, which he would eventually prove one year later in 1985, when he would return to SNL as executive producer and hang on to that role for dear life for an additional 39 years and counting. Brandon called me and said, uh, will you come back? 
And I asked some really smart people in show business what they thought I should do. And someone said, no, you don't do Saturday Night Live. You know, you've already done Saturday Night Live. Somebody who wants to be you does Saturday Night Live. And I thought, oh. And then I thought, right, well, I kind of enjoyed <laughs> being me. And so concludes our first foray into shows that abuse the word new in their titles. For our next offering, we feel the need to counterbalance things with one of those shows where new just happens to be part of an entity's name. With that said, next time on Telehell, further proof of the pitfalls of flash in the pan popularity. It's the new kids on the block. Joseph, Jonathan, Jordan, Donnie, and Danny. Who's their number one fan? I'm the number one fan. I've got all five concert kids with all five personal interview cassettes. I am. I've got all five concert kids with their cassettes and the new kids stage. Plus all five kids in their street clothes. I'm the number one fan. I've got all the kids, their stage, and the new kids on the block phone. The new kids on the block. Who's their number one fan? I am. New kids on the block concert kids come with cassette, stage, hanging loose kids, and accessories sold separately. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Our thanks once again to Andrew Dick, Darren Patterson, and Ian Fermiglitch for taking part in one of the most simple yet most complex cameos we've put together, Long Story. Listen to each of their podcasts wherever you stream them, and our apologies also to Brad Robinson of the Not Ready for Primetime podcast. Sometimes life gets in the way, but don't worry, we'll make it up to you. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. You know that thing that people do in order to communicate with each other without actually having to look each other face to face? You know, social media? Well, we do that. Look for us on X, Facebook, and now Blue Sky. All three of them at Telehell Podcast. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and pretty much tell us what you think of our show everywhere that you can stream us. And also in our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>